Thanks, uh, Rich and Jeremy and Anna for playing. I was just thinking about that first song we sang, The Love of God. I think I last heard it sung as a congregational song at my brother-in-law's funeral five years ago. It was one of his favorite songs, and, uh, and uh, they had a brother from, the, from Faith Bible Church sing that song. I don't think, I think we, perhaps we sing it occasionally at the Lord's Supper, but it's just a wonderful song on God's love for us, so undeserving, and yet he loved us even unto death. We are continuing our study in the book of Romans, and we'll be starting a new section, chapter 9, this morning. But just think of the wonderful passages we've been through in Romans 1 through 8. Paul began by showing us in the first three chapters how all mankind is guilty without God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. The guilt of the Hebrew, the guilt of those who have never heard the gospel, the guilt of the Gentile, the guilt of the hypocrite, all of that, and then culminating in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then comes that transition in that Romans 3 passage that the righteousness of God is being revealed apart from the law, a righteousness that comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, that's the passage that Evan often quotes, a righteousness that comes totally by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, Paul shows us righteousness has always come by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him by righteousness. It was not things that he did. And even the Old Testament saints, righteousness was by faith. And then you have that wonderful section where it shows us the blessings of our justification in Romans 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have access into the grace in which we now stand. Chapter 6 and 7, he deals with, you know, we have the righteousness, but why don't we act righteous? We still have this body of sin. And that's the constant battle between our old man and the new man. And then he culminates that with, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last two Sundays, we had that wonderful section in Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And then he goes on, what shall we say then to these things? If he who gave us his son, shall he not withhold from us? Shall he not give us all freely all things? And then our memory verse this morning. I can picture, can you picture Paul if he was writing the quilt? You remember we had that role playing where Paul and where uh, Jack and Nate were doing uh, how Paul was writing. Nate was Tertius the scribe and Paul was dictating. Perhaps this Romans he was writing by himself, I'm not sure. But can you picture him and the Holy Spirit prompting him? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, things to come. Neither death, nor life, nor height, nor depth. Nor any created thing separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And that brings us to chapter 9. Chapter 9, I've titled God's Past Dealings with Israel. If you can have the screen on, Andy, we're going to be having, I'm doing it a little differently today. We're going to have the scripture on. As I read through it, it'll be projected up there. Uh, it's from the New King James. The scripture verses are inspired, the titles are not. The titles and the outline today as courtesy of John Phillips. 
Now, uh, some of us are close to thinking John Phillips is almost inspired in some of his writing, <laughs> but he's not. God's past dealings with Israel, chapter 9. You might wonder after all these wonderful chapters that we've had on faith and salvation and righteousness and God's love for us. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. What does God's past dealings with Israel have to do with us today? February 24th, 2019, sitting in Finneytown, Cincinnati in this church this morning. Well, the beauty of Scripture, as 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, that all Scripture is given by inspiration, as useful for reproof, for correction, for instruction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all Scripture is useful. And we're going to see that. And I've got on your outline that was handed out this morning, I've actually put in applications there, because what's the use of just talking academically about Scripture unless it applies to our lives? So we're going to be looking at this section. Now, uh, some commentators consider this chapters 9, 10, and 11 as sort of a parenthesis between chapter 8 and chapter 12. And uh, you have these wonderful chapters on our salvation in Christ, salvation by faith and faith alone. And then you have chapter 12. Since we have such great salvation, how shall we live? Romans 12.1, Therefore I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, a spiritual act of worship. But I don't think it's really a parenthesis. I think in these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, Paul is continuing the gospel story as it applies to the Jews and to the, what happens to the Jewish people. Chapter 9, dealing with the past, God's past dealings with Israel. Chapter 10 and 11, God willing, next two weeks, dealing with the present de- dealings with Israel and future dealings with Israel. Today's uh, chapter 9 is a challenging section. We've had a lot of discussion at the elders' meetings these past few months about chapter 9. And so as we begin, let's ask the Lord to direct this meeting and for the Holy Spirit to speak. Father, we just come to you this morning. We Thank you for your word. Thank you for the freedom to open it. I do pray for your spirit to be active this morning. As we look through this chapter and some of the difficult statements that are made in sections that are there, that your spirit would open them up for us. That you would speak through your servant. There's nothing said that would detract from the wonderful salvation we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for the saints and for the needs here today that your spirit would speak to us. I just ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the question is, I said, you know, how how does God's past dealings with Israel apply to us today? First three verses, and I'm going to read that in a minute. You see, in spite of the spirit-empowered and impassioned ministry of the Apostle Paul and the other apostles and others, very few of the Jewish people had been saved at this time. At the time Paul wrote this epistle to the Romans, the temple was still standing. Sacrifices were still being offered, even though meaningless at that point, really, but they were being offered. And only a small number of the Jewish people were saved. And many, most Jews were not persuaded that Jesus was the Messiah. And sadly, today that remains the same, isn't it? The problem that Paul had to address was this. You see, God had made many wonderful promises to the Jewish people and covenants with the Jewish people. 
But in light of the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, what happened to all those promises? Did they fall by the wayside? Were they void? Were they null and void? And if that was the case, if they were no longer valid, how could you trust a God who made such wonderful promises and now it's null and void? Then how could you trust the first eight chapters of Romans and all these assurances that Paul is giving? So did those promises fail? And Paul explains in these chapters, no, they haven't. Yes, the Jews have rejected Jesus. Yes, they have been temporarily set aside so that the Gentiles might be grafted in. But all of God's promises to the Jewish people, to the nation, will be fulfilled. God is a God who keeps his promises. And so we uh, thank God for that, isn't it? Every promise he makes is yea and amen, it tells us in Scripture. His promises haven't failed. And it wasn't, in a sense, plan A and plan B. God's plan was always that even the Gentiles would be grafted. Yes, there was a genuine offer of the kingdom to the people of Israel. But God knew in advance that they would reject him. And uh, as we will look at in Old Testament scripture, that the pairing that Gentiles would come into the church was Jew and Gentile would be one in Christ to those who trust him by faith. So we're going to be looking at that. Let me read uh, the first three verses in Romans chapter 3. I'm reading from the New King James. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. You know, these verses show uh, Paul's anguish for the Jewish people, and that's that first title there. And also show why Paul was such an effective evangelist. You know, many people thought, many Jews thought that Paul had abandoned his own people for the sake of the despised Gentiles, and some accused him of telling lies in his teaching. And here he solemnly vows that what he says is the truth and the absolute truth. I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. Although our times and cultures are different today, many people are skeptical of Christians and and that's especially true for the younger generation. Uh, a Barna poll done a few years back, uh, non-Christians aged, aged 16 through 29, asked, what is your current perception of Christianity? Here is how they answered. 91% said anti-homosexual. 87% said judgmental. 85% said hypocritical. 78% said old-fashioned. 72% said out of touch with reality and truth. 70% said insensitive to others. I'm not saying that we should ignore sin, but do we have compassion for the sinner? This morning, Corey speaking there was talking about that, wasn't he? You see, Paul... Was so, had so much anguish for the Jewish people, his countrymen, that he was willing to be condemned to hell so that his brethren could be saved. Now we just saw in Romans 8, the last part, Paul knew that couldn't happen. Nothing could separate him from the love of Christ. But he was willing to be, to be condemned so that his people would be saved. Moses also in uh, Exodus, you see that, in Exodus 32, after Moses comes down from the mountain and the people were worshipping the golden calf, 
Moses intercedes and then says, now if you will forgive their sin, that God would do so. But if not, blot me out of your book, but let them be saved. He was willing to be condemned so that his people could be saved. Pastor Ray Stedman, who was visiting a congregation, was talking to the leadership there about why they had let their pastor go recently. And well, they said, he kept telling us we were all going to hell if we did not trust in Christ. Stedman said, well, what does the new pastor say? And the congregation replied, well, he tells us we're all going to hell if we do not trust in Christ. So what's the difference, Stedman asked. He said, the people said, the difference is that when the previous pastor said it, it sounded like he was glad that those who didn't trust were going to hell. When the new pastor says it, it sounds like it's breaking his heart. When the new pastor said, it sounds like it's breaking his heart. Paul's heart was breaking that his countrymen did not trust the gospel of salvation. Romans 1.16, I'm persuaded the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and the Gen- then the Gentile. And yet, they were not trusting. Two applications I'd like to draw here from that before we go into the main part of this. Does our heart break? Does our heart break for those who don't trust the gospel? Whether it's in our own family, it's in our places of work, it's in the people we come in contact with on a daily basis. Does our heart break? You know, Paul could have walked away and said, well, I presented the gospel, and now, you know, you reject it, you go to hell anyway. But no, he doesn't say that. And sometimes we feel like that, don't we, honestly? Especially when you look at the world around us, some of the, anti-abortion, uh, some of the abortion activists, some of the homosexual activists, some of the whatever activists that are there that you don't agree with, sometimes your blood boils. But do we have compassion? And does our heart break for these people who don't know the Lord and are going to an eternal destiny of hell? And the second application is this. What are we willing to give up? Paul was willing to be condemned to hell that they would be saved. What are we willing to give up that they would come to know a Savior? Are we willing to give up our time? Are we willing to give up ourselves? Are we willing to give up our treasure? That others, if, if you can't go yourself, that others could go and spread the gospel? Are we willing to pray? Are we willing to take time to do that? Does our heart break? What are we willing to give up? Paul's anguish for the Jewish people. Let's move on to the main section of this passage. And again, I said this is John Phillips' outline, and I'm using that. Paul's analysis, Paul's analysis of the Jewish problem. The first thing, uh, how he sees the problem is... Uh, And he have two sections there, God's gracious blessings to the nation and then God's dealings with the nation. Firstly, God's blessings to Israel. Verses 4 and 5, let's read that. My countrymen, that's the last part of 3, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom According to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Paul lists kind of an eightfold blessing in that that the Jewish people had. Adoption. In Exodus 4.22 and Hosea 11.1, 1, 
God speaks of Israel, the nation of Israel, as his adopted son, the adoption. Glory refers to the Shekinah glory that resided in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. The covenants refer to the covenants made with the nation, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12. I will make you a great nation, both the covenant, both to him and the land. The Mosaic covenant, the covenant of the law, the Davidic covenant, internal dynasty that will endure, and the new covenant given in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel. The uh, law was the Mosaic law, the foundation of all our legal codes, even over the millennia and even today. The service was the ceremonial rituals of worship that we've been looking at at prayer meeting in the book of Leviticus. The promises were the great messianic and millennial promises that were given in the Old Testament. The fathers are the patriarchs and the great people of God that are listed all through the Old Testament. You have a lot of that listing in the New Testament, Hebrews 11. But the greatest of all blessings to the Jewish people was that the person who came from from their nation, from their lineage of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ, born to Jewish parents, born and raised in a Jewish home under the law, but one who came to fulfill the law and who brought salvation to us. All of those blessings were the Jewish people's. And yet, what does John 1.11 say? He came unto his own, and they rejected him. But then it goes on, but to as many as received him, to them that believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Let me give an example, illustration from uh, the late R.C. Sproul. And I, I kind of mentioned this, I think, a couple of weeks ago. R.C. Sproul was teaching a seminary class of uh, 250 student, college students, an introductory class on the Old Testament. On the first day of class, this is him writing, I gave the students a syllabus and I said, you have to write three short-term papers, five pages each. The first one is due on September 30th when you come to class, the second one October 30th, and the third one November 30th. Make sure that you've done them by the due date because if you don't, unless you are physically confined to the hospital or there's a death in the immediate family, you will get an F on that assignment. Does everybody understand that? All the students said yes. On September 30th, 250, 225 of my students came in with their term papers. There were 25 terrified freshmen who came in trembling. They said, oh, Professor Sproul, we didn't budget our time properly. We haven't made the transition from high school to college the way we should have. Please don't flunk us. Please give us a few more days to get our papers finished. And Sproul says, okay, this once I will give you a break. I will let you have three more days to get your papers in, but don't let that happen again. Then came October 30th. This time, 200 students came with their term papers, but 50 students didn't have them. I asked them, where are your papers? They said, well, you know how it is, Professor. We're having midterms, and we've had all kinds of assignments for other classes. Plus, it's homecoming week. We're just running a little late. Please give us one more chance. And Sproul says, you don't have your papers? Do you remember what I said the last time? I said, don't even think about not having this one done on time. And now 50 of you don't have them done? Oh, yes, they said, we know. And Sproul says, okay, I will give you three more days to turn your papers, but this is the last time I extend the due date. Do you know what happened? They were very thankful in praising what I had done. I was the most popular professor on that campus. Then came November 30th. This time 100 of them came in with their term papers, but 150 of them did not. I watched them walk in a school as casual as they could be. And so he goes to one by one, do you have your paper? No. F. 
They have your paper, no, F. And the students started crying out, that's so unfair, it's unjust. And Sproul concludes that example with this. He says, Sproul went on to explain that the first time, the students were amazed by grace. The second time, they just assumed it. And by the third time, they viewed it as an entitlement that they deserved. Let me read that again. The first time, they were amazed by grace. The second time, they just assumed it. And by the third time, they viewed it as an entitlement that they deserved. Now, the Jewish people, I would say, viewed it as an entitlement. They were the chosen people after all. They viewed it as an entitlement they deserved. How about us? Let's draw a quick application there. And I mentioned this when I kind of briefly shared this illustration a couple of weeks ago. When we come to the Lord's table, are we astounded by the grace of God that he saved us and that we can be here this morning? Or we just assume it or we view it as an entitlement? The Jewish people thought in light of all God's promises they were entitled to God's grace. God is sovereign and he doesn't owe us anything. Let me make that statement again. God is sovereign. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us his love. He doesn't owe us his mercy. He doesn't owe us his grace. He doesn't owe us salvation. But he chooses to do that. Deuteronomy 7 verse 7, the Lord says, I chose you, the nation of Israel, not because you were the greatest among all people, but because you were the smallest, the least. But I chose to extend my love to you. Not one of us is entitled to God's grace. But he chooses to give us his grace. The love of God is greater far. We sang that this morning. God's gracious blessings to Israel. Now we come to a more difficult section here. God's dealings with Israel. And that covers the section from 6 through 29. So bear with me. as it'll stretch, It stretches our mind and I'm not sure that we can ever fully explain some of this. But uh, bear with me as we try to unpack it. First, let me read verses 6 through 13. That is God's dealings with Israel that are based on God's infinite superlative wisdom. Verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. We see that it's quoted from Genesis. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, For the children, verse 11, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. It is not that God's word has failed. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. What does that mean? Well, 
Paul is bringing the truth that birth into the patriarchal family did not automatically confer spiritual privilege. Birth into the patriarchal family did not, does not confer automatically spiritual privilege. And before we move further, let's just take an application out of that. You know, people say that uh, if you're born in India, you would be a Hindu. If you're born in the Middle East, you would be a Muslim. If you're born in the West, you'd be a Christian. Now, the first two may be true. The third is never true. Because we're birth into a Christian family does not make you a child of God. You might think so. You might go to church along with your family. You might have been doing that all these years and thinking you're a Christian. But that does not make you and will never make you a child of God unless you trust by faith the finished work of the Lord Jesus at Calvary, trust him as your savior, and surrender your life to him. Now this uh, statement in verse 11, for the children not yet being born, not having any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. There's two ways people read that statement. Some read it from a man-centered perspective in which the emphasis is on what, what man does in either choosing or rejecting God and assumes that God's choosing is based on what man does assumes that God's choosing is made on what man does. But that perspective completely negates, completely negates and neglects the sovereignty of God, which Paul is trying to explain in this section. The other perspective is a God-centered perspective in which the emphasis is on what God acts and chooses, regardless of what man does, which assumes that what man does merely reflects God's decisions and man has no real moral or free choice. Now, in our finite human minds, both those choices cannot exist together. And therefore, you have two theological camps, one which emphasizes God's sovereignty and his choosing and his election, the other which emphasizes man's responsibility and his choosing. Scripture presents both as true. God's sovereignty, his election is presented to us. Man's responsibility, his choosing is presented to us. And as Spurgeon said, I never try to reconcile friends. Now, what examples does Paul, Paul use in this section? The first one is Isaac and Ishmael. You see, God promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son, that he would be the son of promise, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, through his seed. But long after that promise was given, nothing was happening on the baby front. And uh, they were getting old. And so Sarah takes matters into her hands and presents uh, Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid, to Abraham and and they have a child, the child's Ishmael, but he was not the son of promise, the one promised by God. And in God's perfect timing, the son of promise, Isaac, is born. Paul is introducing the truth here that God's promises were not intended to apply to all of Abraham's seed, but a remnant that God chose. Now, the Jewish people might object to that, saying that, you know, that promise didn't really apply because uh, part of that equation was not from the Jewish, what would become the Jewish nation. That was Hagar, an Egyptian handmaid. So Paul gives the second example of Esau and Jacob. Both parents are of Abraham's family. Remember, Abraham sends a servant to go and find a wife uh, for Isaac. Both are the same lineage that would become the nation of Israel. 
But before the boys are born, before they can do anything to earn God's favor or judgment, God chooses Jacob. That first statement, the elder shall serve the younger, is made before the boys, before the twins are born. The twins are battling in the womb, and God says two nations are going to come out of this, and the elder shall serve the younger. God chose But the second statement that's given there, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Although both those statements are lumped together here in these verses, that statement was made by God hundreds of years later. It is recorded in scripture hundreds of years later in the book of Malachi. In uh, Malachi chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. And, it, and uh, it's, although it's given together here, it is made primarily not exclusively, primarily in relation to the actions of the descendants of Esau, of the nation of Edom that treated the nation of Israel disgracefully. The infinite wisdom of God chose Jacob and chose Isaac. Chose Isaac, rejected Ishmael. The infinite wisdom of God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. And in both cases, if you look at the outworking of history, you see the far-reaching wisdom of God's choice. Ishmael and Esau both rejected the things of God in their lives, didn't they? But in spite of all their faults, Isaac and Jacob loved the things of God and are listed in Hebrews 11. So God's dealings were based on his sovereign choosing, but we can see the wisdom of his choosing in the ones that, in that the ones not chosen rejected God. It's hard for us to understand, isn't it? God's sovereignty is choosing his election. Man's responsibly choosing. Both presented in scripture. And both given for us as examples. Now the question that might arise, did God hate Esau before he was even born? I'll ask you that this morning. Did God hate Esau before he was even born? No. No. The answer is no. Now, God could have made that statement, Jacob, have a God who is sovereign, who is infinite, who sees everything in the eternal present, knew what Esau was going to do, knew what Edom was going to do. He could have made that statement, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, before Esau was born. But for our edification, that statement is made hundreds of years later in the book of Malachi. It is not made at the time those twins were born. Spurgeon was a, a woman came to Spurgeon and asked, I have a big problem with this Romans 9.13 where it says, Esau have, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. How can God hate someone? Isn't he a God of love? And Spurgeon looked at the woman and said, Madam, my problem has never been with the statement, Esau have I hated. God really should hate all of us. My problem has always been, how could he have loved Jacob? How could he have loved Jacob? Let's apply that to us this morning. How could he have loved me? You know that song in the black book that says, Sovereign Grace Over Sin Abounding, number 29? It says in one line there, Say, while lost in holy wonder, why, O Lord, such love to me? 
How could he have loved me? Praise God he did. He should have hated us. He could have made that statement of all of us. You have I hated. You have I hated. You have I hated. But no, God demonstrates his love to us in that even though he should have hated us, he loved us and sent his son to die for us. God's dealings based on his wisdom. Secondly, God's dealings based on his sovereign will. Let's read verses 14 through 24. Verses 14 through 24. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. He will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to the one who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles." You see, the question that logically follows the previous two examples of God's choosing, Isaac and Jacob, Ishmael and Esau rejecting, if God is free to choose whoever he wants, isn't that unjust, unfair? If God is free to choose whoever he wants, isn't that unjust or unfair? To be honest, haven't we all felt like that at some times? I know I have. And Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Remember that perspective on those students and Dr. Sproul? No one is entitled to God's grace. But somehow for us, to us it doesn't seem fair that God chooses, doesn't it? You know, when kids, uh, although now everybody's supposed to be equal and equally good and all of that, when sports teams were chosen, remember when there were two captains and, uh, and, they would, and all the students were there and they would choose teams and you hoped you wouldn't be the last one chosen for the team? I think we have that mindset in our minds of how God chooses. But no, none of us deserve to be chosen. And God in his sovereignty chooses. And man responds. God is under no obligation to explain his ways to men. He is sovereign and does whatever he pleases. But you can be assured that he always acts in accordance with his perfect attributes. His holiness, his sovereignty, his justice, his righteousness, his love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his goodness. He acts in accordance with his attributes. 
This section on Romans 9 is perhaps one of the greatest passages in Scripture on God's sovereignty. And Paul goes back in Jewish history and gives examples to demonstrate this. He shows God in his sovereignty, pardoning a rebellious Israel and punishing and judging a hardened Pharaoh. The first illustration is the statement to Moses in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What's the context of that? Well, in Exodus chapter 32, when Moses was on top of Mount Sinai and the law was being given, and this has always amazed me, the people were down below. They could see God's glory on the mountaintop, the smoke, the fire, the lightning. And they say, you know, this man Moses is not coming back down. Make us a calf. And they, Aaron makes a golden calf. And they begin worshiping right in the sight with God. They're being able to see God. Moses comes down from the mountain in anger, breaks the stone tablets, grinds the golden calf to powder, mingles it with water, and forces the rebellious nation to drink that. And then in response to the challenge that Moses gives, who is on the Lord's side? Only the tribe of Levi responds. He asks them to strap on their swords. 3,000 people are killed. You see that in Exodus 32. And then in Exodus 32 and 33, Moses is interceding for the people of Israel, and, and God assures him that my presence will go with you. And then Moses says, show me your glory. And it's then that God makes the statement, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And Paul uses that statement here to demonstrate God's sovereignty. You see, the reality was that the nation had forfeited all right to God's blessing, yet God showed mercy. They had forfeited all right. Think of that. They see the mountaintop and they see God's presence there, right at the bottom, in spite of being able to see that, they sin in worshiping the golden calf. They had seen all the other miracles. They had seen, they had come through the Red Sea. They had seen the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. They had seen the water from the rock. They had seen manna. And yet, sin. Let's take an application there. Do we? We know that God can see us. Do we continue to sin? I do. This body of sin is still with us, isn't it? Oh, the victory only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. Well, two, uh, two takeaways from this. Two perspectives, perhaps, to keep in mind from Paul's illustration. Firstly, we are not entitled to anything from God. God is sovereign. Yet, secondly, God in his sovereignty shows mercy. Yet in his sovereignty, God shows mercy. How thankful I am for that. The second illustration is Pharaoh and the nation of Israel. You know, in Romans eleven twenty-two, it says, Behold the kindness and the goodness and the severity of God. Both are mentioned in Romans eleven twenty-two. But there are two extremes that we must avoid. The first, one is to overemphasize the mercy of God and conclude that God is too kind to condemn a person to an eternity of woe. That's prevalent in our Christian circles today, that God is too kind and too merciful to condemn somebody to an eternity of woe. You have this love wins theology that's out there. That all will be saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. 
The other extremity is to overemphasize the severity of God and make God, in this example, the sole author of Pharaoh's stubbornness. And I don't think that's what the pastor is saying either. In uh, John Phillips' uh, exposition of this from Alfred Edersheim, 20 times in the book of Exodus in God's dealing with Pharaoh, 20 times the word hardening or harden is used. Now in our English, those are the only words that I used, but in the Hebrew there are three separate words that I used to describe that hardening. One is the, uh, in Exodus 7 verse 3, which literally means to make hard or insensible, hard or insensible. In Exodus 10 verse 1, it means to make heavy or unimpressionable. And in Exodus 14, verse 4, literally to make firm or stiff or immovable. So insensible, unimpressionable, immovable. Three sort of different aspects of hardening. Now in these 20 times that the word is used in relation to Pharaoh and God, 10 times, 10 times, it is attributed to Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And 10 times it is attributed to God. And in both of all of those ten times each, all three words are used. Now, before the plagues and during the first five plagues, every time it is Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's only after the sixth plague that it begins to say, God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. And even then there is mercy because after the seventh plague, it again says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Only after the eighth plague, it's exclusively God hardened his heart. There's a sobering application there, isn't it? My uncle, my mom's younger brother, he was in the Indian Foreign Service, went way up almost just to the... And even in those days, in the early 60s, 70s, was posted overseas multiple places, was second in line to the ambassador in London. They were society people. They're always at clubs and this and that. So they always had a problem. He grew up in, as a boy. He was an altar, and they were in the Church of South India, the Anglican Church. He grew up as a choir boy, heard the scripture many times, saw the witness of my parents who came to know the Lord. But they always had a problem with how could all these good Hindu people be condemned for it. And they could never get past that. And hardened his heart. Hardened his heart. He had many times the gospel was presented to him. Many times he sat through gospel meetings. Many times it was personally witnessed to. In his waning years, he wound up with dementia. And unless the Lord had somehow miraculously looked in his heart, I don't see, think we will see him in heaven. I'll ask you this morning. You've been coming to church many times. You've heard the gospel many times. Have you been hardening your heart? I'll do it later. I'll do it later. I'll do it later. There may come a time when God begins to harden your heart and that grace is no longer available. I'm not saying it will happen. God in his grace can allow that to happen. But this is a sobering warning to us. Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart. heart. God hardened his heart so that God's glory may be revealed. God's dealings with Israel based on his sovereign will. The second uh, verses 22 to 24 
verses 22 to 24. There's been much discussion among the elders on this too. On the face of it, it appears that God prepared some human beings for destruction. But it, if you read that section, and I'm going to get into that in a minute, it does not say that God explicitly prepared them for destruction. Does God create people in order to damn them? I'll throw that open to the audience. Today. Does God create people in order to condemn them or to damn them? No. Let's look at that now. What if God, verse 22, but what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Gentiles only, but also of the not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And I've read through that, and I've thought, you know, that saying that God prepared them. It does not, if you read that carefully, the prepared come, the word prepared is twice. It says vessels of wrath. It does not say which he prepared for destruction. But in the second one, which vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Now our English says prepared in both cases. But the Greek is different. The first prepared, the vessels of wrath. It's what's called a reflexive verb. And it's best translated, who prepared themselves, or he prepared himself. That the person themselves prepared themselves for destruction. The second prepared is an active voice verb. God taking an active role in preparing vessels of mercy. And that goes along with scripture, doesn't it? Ephesians 2 verse 10, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he had beforehand prepared for us to do. God taking an active role. Philippians 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will carry it forward to the day of Christ Jesus. But the first prepared vessels of wrath, best translated, which prepared themselves for destruction. God is still long-suffering towards those who prepare themselves for destruction. I would say that's the way that verse best reads. God is still long-suffering towards those who prepare themselves for destruction. And that would go along with 2 Peter 3, verse 8 and 9. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is long-suffering towards those who prepare themselves for destruction. But to us, vessels of mercy... He takes an active role in preparing us for glory. Just a couple things to take away. God is free to choose who he wants. God's choice is not subject to man's conditions or merit of any kind, yet he shows mercy. And God's sovereignty does not in any way preclude or exclude man's responsibility. God's dealings based on his sovereign will the last section here is uh, in this part, is verses 25 through 29. God's dealings with Israel based on his spoken or his prophetic word. As he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. 
for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord him will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed or a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. God's dealings with Israel were also based on his spoken or prophetic word. The word of God clearly predicted the ultimate blessing of God to all peoples, including the Gentiles. You have that in Genesis 12, which is blessed to all people. But this first quotation here is from Hosea chapter 1, and eight through ten, and verse two, chapter two, verse twenty-three. Remember, one of the children born to Hosea and the adulteress Gomer was to be called Lo Ami. Lo Ami, you are not my people. And what Paul is saying here: Remember, no Gentile people were ever called the people of God in the Old Testament. But what Paul is saying here: that now in Christ, both Jew and Gentile are lifted far higher than anything the nation of Israel ever knew. We are called sons of God. He came unto his own, and his own received him, not John 1, 11 and 12, but to as many as received him, to them that believed in his name, he gave the right to be called sons or children of God. First John 3, verses 1, Behold what manner of love the Father had bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God. That is what we are, he says in verse 3. What a wonderful privilege to be called children, sons of God. The second quotation is from Isaiah uh, 10, verses 22 and 23. The same Old Testament blessing which predicted the blessing of God on the Gentiles also speaks of God's blessing but on a small Jewish remnant. Unless God had spared a few. That's what Paul, that, that verse really says. Unless It says, unless he had left us a seed. That there is a Jewish remnant. God's people have always been a small remnant. That there will be Jews who will be saved. And we'll uh, look at that in the next couple chapters. So God's dealings based on his wisdom, on his infinite wisdom, based on his sovereign will, based on his prophetic and spoken word, and the wisdom, will, and word of God, all agree that God deals in both mercy and in judgment. God deals in both mercy and in judgment. Just again, some takeaways from these verses. May I suggest five? Firstly, God has the absolute right to do what he wants with those he has created. That's the potter and the clay. God has the absolute right to do what he wants with those he has created. You know the question we ask, does God create people to damn them? I don't think any potter puts that clay on the spinning wheel so that it would be broken or damned even before he created even before he starts working on it. Have you thought about that? You know, we say that potter and the clay, it's so unjust. God has the absolute right to do what he wants with those he has created. Number two, vessels of wrath reveals God's power and wrath and prepare themselves for destruction. Vessels of wrath reveal God's wrath and power and prepare themselves for destruction. Number three, vessels of mercy reveal God's glory and God takes an active role and prepares beforehand for glory. Number four, God always intended to call both Jews and Gentiles, and God knew that many Israelites would reject him. Number five, God always has a faithful remnant. Number five, God always has a faithful remnant. We were at Urbana 2018. I'm going over time, but we have chapel lunch, so don't worry. We were at Urbana 2018, and uh, I 
I mean, I'm, I'm okay with the music that gets really loud and contemporary. But one evening they had a choir of 800 students. And they sang, holy, holy, holy. And they're all dressed in white. And as the camera panned across them, you had these faces from every nationality on the globe singing, holy, holy, holy. God always has a faithful remnant from every kindred, tribe, nation that will be there in glory. Hallelujah for that. God's dealings with Israel. And lastly, very quickly here, how he summarizes the problem. The last section, verses 30 to 33, I won't read it. It should be up there. It's a summary of the problems the Jews had and continue to have. You see, they felt as, a, like a, a, that, as the chosen people, they were always entitled to God's blessings. And as long as they kept the law as best as they could, all would be well. The first part of Romans puts an end to that. There is no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jew and Gentile. Warren Wearsby says this, The Jews thought that the Gentiles had to come up to their level to be saved. In other words, keep the law as best as they could. While in reality, they had to come down to the level of the Gentiles, admit they were sinners also, and be saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And that to this day, the Lord Jesus continues to be a stumbling block for them. The Jews were attempting righteousness by works and failed. In contrast, the the Gentiles who were not really seeking righteousness, when the gospel was presented to them, trusted God, admitted they were sinners, and were saved by faith in Christ Jesus. So the Gentiles attained righteousness by faith. The Jews attempted righteousness by works and failed. And that's always been a stumbling block. That's been a difficult section, hasn't it? It stretches our minds as we think about God's sovereignty and yet his mercy and man's responsibility. Some quick applications. Don't try to reconcile God's sovereignty and man's, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Both are taught in Scripture. John MacArthur says, to fully understand God, we would have to be equal to God, and that would be even more absurd than a clay pot being equal to the potter who created it. J.I. Packer, expanding on Spurgeon's words, says, in the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends, and they work together. All of us, I think, all of us have to make two applications from this. If I am a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ this morning, thank and praise God for that. If you have put your faith in Christ, that is only because God has chosen you to make you into a vessel of mercy, not because of anything you have done or to deserve it. And if you are a child of God, does your heart break for those who are not? And what are you willing to give up? Maybe we should examine our hearts this morning, shouldn't we? Does our heart break? And what are we willing to give up? And if you're not a child of God, that sobering warning given through Pharaoh, don't harden your heart today. You may not get another chance, and God might decide to harden. When the scripture and the truth of salvation is presented, are you willing to respond and surrender to his grace? I hope you will. If you're trying to please God by your own works to achieve righteousness, it will never happen. Our righteousness comes, a righteousness apart from the law, comes by faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. May His name be glorified. Let's close in prayer.
Our God and Father, we just thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the truth of your sovereignty. Thank you for the truth of your mercy, love, and grace. I pray if there's anyone here this morning that has not trusted you as Savior, that they would open their hearts and not harden it this morning, that they would respond to the truth of the gospel, that salvation, that righteousness comes only in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that they would give their lives to you. And for those of us who have trusted him, that you would help us to be thankful every day of our lives for such amazing love, grace, and mercy toward us. And the application for does our heart break for those who haven't, and what are we willing to give up as we go through this week? May we consider that and prayerfully seek your will in our lives, that you would work in and through us in the places you put us in. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the fellowship lunch. Thank bless the hands which have prepared it. Bless our time of fellowship. We just ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Mm-hmm.